Good morning again to you all. Good to see you on this bright, wonderful Sunday morning. We are so busy that we had to have announcements continue on a second page. I don't remember that happening. That's, that's incredible. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. First Thessalonians 2, 3. Choir rehearsal today at 5 o'clock will not be happening. So if you're a choir member, no choir practice. Also, no music night, which would be the typical fifth Sunday um, tonight. So that's going to be rescheduled. However, we will meet as per normal uh, at 6 o'clock for our study in John. Bring your finger foods. Um, baby bottle. Take an empty baby bottle on the foyer table right behind me. I just saw him. Uh, fill it with money and bring it back on Father's Day. Does that mean fill it with $100 bills? or Okay. <laughs> um, men's Bible study Tuesday 10 at McLeod's. Prayer meeting Wednesday at 7. Attention nursery workers. Changes are coming to our nursery children's ministry programs we need two more volunteers willing to serve if you're interested see jolene stand-up meeting of all volunteers will be held in the front pews sunday may 20th so about a month or three weeks okay uh nursery is also getting a makeover older toys have been removed and are now available would you believe that we ended up with more of those toys at our house we need to add on for our toys <laughs> anyway, if you, if you please, if you uh, if you want to take some of those <laughs> um, bowling, if anybody's back is good enough shape to bowl, I'm not sure. I think I might get a checkup before I go. But open bowling that'll be great at Gerlax in Lapeer, May 12th. Sign up sheet coming soon on the helps board. Back when the dinosaurs roamed on the earth. Um, <laughs> Laura and I were substitute bowlers on the First Baptist Church of Rochester Bowling League. And we had, we had great fun with that. We, we got to know people, you know, the people I thought, those people are old, you know. They, they were wonderful people, and we got to know them. Um, thanks to the deacons for working on the entrance. Yes, thank you very much. Um, the adult Bible study will be uh, 6.30 at the Luke home on May the 8th, uh, so that's coming up in about a week. Um, if you'd like to help with the social calendar, we'd love your input. See Jessica. Jessica's done a lot of work on trying to gather some information and some things, so she'd appreciate some help, and you'll see uh, Andrea's telephone number there if you haven't already got it in your phone for the prayer chain, and that's her number. All right. Anything else? Acts and facts. I just have it in my hand. Here's one right here. That'll get your attention. Can you get an update on Jack? I don't have an update on Jack. Does anybody? Pacemaker floor. Yes, 
Yeah, okay. <laughs> Room 1215? Floor 12. Oh. Room 15. Oh, okay. Floor 12, room 15. Great. Thanks, guys, for that. Okay, where are we at? Let's stand and open our service in prayer. <laughs> George, would you lead us? Take your um, brown hymnals and turn to page one. Page one in the brown hymnal. I'm sorry, George, I can't help you. <laughs>
and we need a hymn for the week. And I'm Naomi was my first hand. I'm sorry, Dale. We want you next week, but Naomi's birthday was last week, and I told her I would get her this week because Naomi. <coughs> Angels we have heard on high. Do you know what number that is? One thirty-two. You're really close, Andrew. One thirty-two in the brown. And Naomi, what is our reason for this? we have heard on high. Now all, all, all the Christmas hymns that we sing can be sung all, all year long because they're all about Christ. Yes? Alright. Here we go. <coughs>
scripture reading this morning is 1 Thessalonians, second chapter, and we'll be reading verses 10 through 20. Sorry. Awkward pause. What am I reading? It's sorry, I lost track. Two, ten through twenty. It's first Thessalonians. Chapter two, ten through twenty. You are witnesses, and so is God of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each other as your father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into the, his kingdom in glory. <clears throat> and we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you've heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God, <clears throat> which is at work in you who believe. For you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen the same things whose churches suffered <clears throat> from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and also drove us out. They, dis they displeased God and are hostile to all men in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always, heap upon their, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. But brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan stopped us. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy.
We've joined the choir in standing and turned to number 677 in the Trinity in the red hymnal, 677, 677. Our scripture text is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 Thessalonians 2. Today we begin a new series entitled Joy Unspeakable. And I've chosen the King James Version uh, statement on that from 1 Peter 1 and, and verse 8. The NIV says joy inexpressible, but I like the uh, King James on this. And this uh, is the corollary to our series which we've just completed, Believers Under Trial. And... It's this corollary, joy unspeakable, that makes life worth living. And I'm thinking of the Christian life. I mean, think about it. If salvation's benefits were all in the future, it'd be very difficult indeed for anyone to relish the idea of living 
in a state in which the only thing we experience in this life is pain and suffering and failure and hurt and heartache. Who wants to live that way? Indeed, the world has sometimes given Christianity this label. That to become a Christian means you will have to give up all your, here it is, fun. That's what the way, the way the world puts it. And the notion of the Puritans clothed in black draping and women's head bonnets comes to mind in that kind of expression. An image is faulty then as the assumptions made of the present day believers are striving to live holy lives. By no fun, of course, the world rightly concludes the view of Moses' decision when he came of age as an adult, the scripture says, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be ill-treated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. Hebrews 11, verse 24 and 25. It is thought by the unbelieving world that indulging in sin is the only avenue for having fun. So when a person becomes a disciple of Jesus Christ, it is assumed that that day is when all fun in life ceases and gloom and doom sets in. Peter says, for you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. And then he lists them. Living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousings, and detestable idolatry. They think, here is their analysis, they think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, that is the same kind of self-indulgence and indecency. And, he goes on, they heap abuse on you. 1 Peter 4, verse 3 and 4. When I was growing up, and became part of the neighborhood teens, now not, not necessarily a gang, but just teens that hung out together, Invariably, some brainiac would come up with the bright idea of vandalizing some neighbor's property. A vacant house, a garage, a parked car. Let's go throw stones through the windows of the old Palmer house on 4th Street. And if anyone declined to go and to be a part of this sin, they would be quickly and negatively labeled, You kill joy! then everyone in favor of the vandalism would do his best to get the killjoy to change his mind. And if that did not happen, you were then blackballed for refusing to be a part of the fun, rightly said, and then it brought forth in the neighborhood. Now I read something like that, you know, things have not changed since my early days, things have not changed since the day of Peter. For 
Today's concepts of fun include the same illicit things. Vandalism, fornication, getting drunk or high on opioid drugs, late night carousings, just itching for some avenue of sin to present itself. This has always been a part of the sinful world's idea of fun. What happens in Las Vegas stays in Las Vegas. So you can go out there and live as a profligate. And yes, the world is correct to assume, to expect, that followers of Jesus Christ exemplify Paul's analysis. We have renounced secret and shameful ways. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 2. Knowing the truth of what the apostle also wrote to the church of Rome. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you're now ashamed of? (laughs) Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness. And the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. That the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 6, verses 21 and following. So I would say yes, yes. We admit that as believers in Jesus, we no longer intentionally crave after sinful indulgences. But instead, seek to live holy lives pleasing to the Lord. But that said, we renounce any idea... That becoming a Christian is a drag or defeatist or the killing of all joy. We simply get our joy from other sources. Sources that feed the appetites of a renewed heart and a renewed in in nature. Let me read it to you from Romans 8. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Romans 8 verse 5. What a contrast. Okay, what is the mindset of these two natures? Again, let me read it for you. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. Galatians 5, verse 17. And the context shows how these two opposing natures pan out. Let me read on. The acts of the sinful nature writes Paul, are obvious, and then he lists them. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Just in case he didn't get to name your particular sin. And the like. 
like things that are like that. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So what is the sinful nature involved in? Well, it's everything lawless, everything that is an affrontery to God. And that text is Galatians 5, 19 through 21. The pleasures of sin. Bill Cosby, the comedian, has been indicted on charges of drugging women so that he could have sexual encounters with them and they would not know it. And that's in the courts today. Mr. Comedian, Mr. Jovial, not so funny with regard to his conduct. That's the fruit of the, or the works of the sinful nature. Now, by contrast, he goes on to say, Paul does, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law, that is to say, None of these things are lawless. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and with its desires. So since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22 and following. Now no two more obvious polar opposites could be found than what we find in this text. But did you notice that enlisting life in the spirit, Paul's second trait was joy, joy. But the joy spoken of is not the joy that comes from the pleasure of sin, but the joy of obeying God and receiving his approval, his grace, and most important, through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of death. Romans 8, verse 2. Live like the devil and you're going to perish like the devil. That's for sure. But if you live like Jesus, you're going to become his brother and fellow heir of all God's blessings. Paul puts it this way, now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed... We share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Romans 8 verse 17. We repudiate then the idea that becoming a disciple of Jesus means the end of all joy or fun as the world would put it. But rather it is the beginning of a new and lasting joy that will carry us all the way from earth to heaven. Let me ask the question, have you never experienced a change in your tastes or appetites or thinking? Paul teaches that change, transition, is part of growing up. He uses himself as a, as a testimony to us. He says, when I was a child, I talked like a child. 
I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. 1 Corinthians 13, 11. You know that some of today's teen hoodlums are tomorrow's hardcore criminals. In other words, they never outgrow their rebellious and lawless nature. They just become more entrenched in evil. How to indulge themselves in it. Some have obtained their teaching degrees and now teach their liberal, godless philosophy to college students all across our country They never grew up. They're hippies still in heart, rebels still in heart to stated authority and righteous morality. They're enemies of God and enemies of the gospel. (coughs) And they're the professors in our colleges. And what do they promote in our colleges? They promote anarchy. They use the power of the pen and the power of the lectern to propagate godless philosophy. Okay, what is deep-seated joy? Well, firstly, it's more than happiness. The pursuit of the world is happiness. The question they ask one another is, are you happy? Their confession concerning their life's pursuit is, all I want out of life is to be happy. Do you know, I never hear anyone confess, all I want out of life is to possess joy. They never say that. The etymology of the word happy is from Middle English. And it means to be favored by luck or fortune. Happenstance. Prosperity, in other words, a state of well-being and contentment. So we learn from all of this that being happy is based on the circumstances in life which come our way mostly, not of our own doing, but simply they just happen. You walk into work on Monday morning and the boss opens up his mail and discovers that his company has just won a $2.5 million contract with an aerospace company in South Texas and immediately he's happy, especially because his company was on the verge of declaring bankruptcy. Two days later, on Wednesday, after doing some analysis, the boss figures out that everyone in the workforce will be able to receive a 20% raise in salary. Now all the employees are happy too. And I'm not knocking this. Good news can make us happy. Favorable circumstances should produce happiness. Happiness. 
But consider another scenario. You walk into work on Monday morning and the boss opens his mail and he discovers not only did his company not receive the aerospace contract from Texas, but the bank, which has been attending him with extended credit and payroll, informs him that he, it will no longer extend credit to him because he does not have enough assets to cover the loan. Not only is the boss demoralized, but by Wednesday the workforce is notified that there will be a 50% reduction in the employees because there's not enough work to keep everyone working. What now will be the state of mind with these circumstances? I can assure you that it will not be happiness, but very likely despondency, worry, uncertainty, fear, hosts of unanswerable questions. What am I going to do? What's going to happen to my family? How am I going to pay the mortgage payment? How will I feed and clothe the kids? Nobody's happy. So happiness, brethren, is based on circumstances. Favorable circumstances, things that make people smile, things that are pleasant, things that are self-satisfying. Things that allow you to sleep at night and wake up refreshed in the morning, ready to meet the challenges of a new day. Circumstances will make you happy. Happiness can be locked into almost any circumstance. Now get it now. Any circumstance you consider to be pleasant. If you're an evil person... What makes you happy might be the fact that you embezzled $50,000 from the company by fudging the books and you got away with it. But you're happy about it. Or happiness might be as simple as a new dress for your birthday and dinner out at a restaurant. Right, ladies? But what all of these definitions have in common is that Happiness is contingent upon your circumstances, either good or bad, and how you relate to them. You can talk to a backwoods mountain man who lives alone in the hills of Montana, subsisting on moose meat for food and beaver pelts for clothing, and he will tell you that he is very happy with his life. Wouldn't change a thing, he says. I like the outdoors. I like being alone. I'm happy with my own thoughts. Mr. Hermit personified. You could also talk with a debutante who has a career in modeling making six figures a year, living in a penthouse in New York City, and yet she may be miserable, lonely, frustrated, and in constant agony of soul because she has concluded that money isn't enough to make her happy. So 
So in light of all this, the Bible does describe happiness as it comes to God's people, but it always it is always within the confines of what is occurring in a person's life. Let me give you an example. I'm reading from scripture. When Leah saw that she had stopped having children, she looked took she took rather her maidservant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, "What good fortune!" So she named him Gad, which means crowds. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, how happy I am. The women will call me happy. So she named him Asher, which means, you guessed it, happy. Genesis 30 verses 9 and following. But Leah wasn't always happy. She was first to be married to Jacob, but last to be loved by Jacob. We read, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, which means see a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord heard that I am not loved. He gave me this son too. So she named him Simeon, which means Heard, God heard. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. And so he was named Levi. Genesis 29, verse 31 and following. Reuben, behold a son. Simeon, heard. And she's referring to the fact that God answered her or heard her prayers. Levi, joined to. Referring to the hope that Jacob would finally, finally love her as he did Rachel. Oh, and one more son, Judah, before she stopped conceiving. Judah means praised, praised. The psalmist puts it this way. He settles the barren woman in her home as happy mother of children. Praise the Lord. Psalm 113 verse 9. Oh, and if you like fairy tale endings. Rachel died first and was buried under an oak tree. And later, Leah died and was buried, put in a cave at Machpelah, owned by the Hittites. And when Jacob died, he let it be known he wanted to be buried next to Leah. 
he came to love. The woman he had so badly treated all of his married life. And he wanted to be laid to rest next to her, not next to Rachel. <clears throat> Solomon speaks of the worker saying, moreover, when God gives a man wealth and possession enables him to enjoy these, to accept his lot and be happy in his work. This is the gift of God. Ecclesiastes 5.19 He even commands us, when times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider, consider, God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, a man cannot discover anything about his future. Ecclesiastes 7.14 Now, by stating that God is in both the good times and the bad times, Solomon is pointing us to something deeper, something more lasting than happiness. And that something to which he alludes is the joy of knowing the one in whose hands is our present circumstances, be they happy or unpleasant, as the case may be. And the certainty of our future. The Greek word for joy... I give you the definition, means an inner, listen, an inner calm or delight. Wow, an inner calm or delight. Uh, another definition reads, contemplative gladness of heart. Wow, I like that one. A contemplative gladness of heart. After you have thought something through, you take an inner delight and gladness in it. And external things can be used by God to bring joy into your life. But the joy itself is an internal reality that's not intrinsically tied to external circumstances. You can have joy in adverse circumstances. <coughs> What I am saying, and it's in your outline, that joy is not in the temporal. Joy now. Happiness, yes. But joy is not in the temporal. And so we've learned that happiness is attached to happenstance. Those circumstances which come our way in life. The world thinks these things come our way by chance or fortune or whatever we believe God is the author of all the events that come our way, good or bad. But we understand that circumstances do not rule over God, but he rules over them. He governs them. He, the outcomes are governed by God. 
And because happiness is attached to external things, what comes our way at the hand of God can make us either happy or sad, as the case may be. What I am saying is that our behavior in such cases is reactionary. It's emotional. It's automatic. We don't have to think about them. Our value system, which by the way is learned, our value system governs our reaction. So if good things, or things we consider to be good, come our way, we respond by being happy. Birth of a new healthy baby. The Clayton family is experiencing a lot of that these days through their children. That makes them happy. You get a promotion at work. Makes you happy. A rich uncle dies and leaves you the key to his ranch in Montana. Wow, now you're really happy. These are circumstances. And if bad things come your way, we respond by being sad or discouraged or angry or frustrated. You can see what you value has a lot to do with all of this. We noted earlier that mountain man is happy with the kill of his hunt and the makeshift hut in the hills, whereas a city slicker would hate those circumstances, would never think of that making him or her happy. Now, in contrast to all of this, joy runs deeper. Joy runs deeper. Joy is not, oh, well, it's just the circumstances. They come my way, and I'm either sad or happy, depending. No, no, joy is contemplative. Well, you say, what do you mean by that? It is the result of thinking and piecing things together. Joy is not emotional, though it can result in a great deal of jubilation and expression of gladness. And it is not automatic. But as indicated, it's the result of knowing some things. It has a cerebral element more than an emotional element. And because of this, joy is not reactionary. It is not based upon circumstances, but upon an inner peace and reality deeply rooted in God's grace. Picture a family involved in the funeral of a loved one who knew the Lord as Savior. I'm sure you've all been in that situation. This person was young by adult standards and was called home by God in what people would call the prime of life. The funeral was conducted with gospel music played on instruments, devotional prayers made to God, testimonies to a life lived in faith before God, and most of all, the gospel message of a Savior who had died to save a sinner who had now gone home to his calling in glory. Oh yeah, there was weeping there, but no wailing. Have you ever watched a 
Oriental sermon or a, f- a funeral, I mean, in the Mideast. I wouldn't want to be there. They wail. And they hire professional wailers as, as well. Those with loud voices that can mourn loudly. Know how to give all the inflections in the voice of sorrow and grief. But in the Christian funeral, no wailing, though there's tears. Tears of sorrow, but not outspurs of anguish. Soul-satisfying words of comfort, but no blaming of God. Peace within, but no argument against providence. The faces of those present at such funerals are contemplative. They are hopeful as they realize that what is often a day of wailing and uncontrollable sorrow for the unbelieving for them was an occasion of joy. I mean, the whole funeral was the living out of the Bible's exhortation. Brothers, we do not want you to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 13. Go ahead and grieve. But let's not lose control. Let's not go into despair. What a demonstration of the difference between happiness and joy. As to the circumstances confronting this family, there is sadness and sorrow. But as to the contemplative, thought-out reality, there is inner joy that produces smiling faces and accolades of praise to God for His grace. How can that be? I'll tell you how it can be. Because joy is not intrinsically connected with the temporal circumstances people experience. And this accounts for some of the seeming paradoxical teaching that we find in the scriptures about joy. And these are mind-boggling. Let me give you some examples. When the apostles defied the charge of the Jewish council, stop preaching in Jesus' name. We don't want any more of that preaching stuff going on in Jerusalem. They defied that charge, and because of that, they were gathered together, arrested, and flogged. A Roman flogging was not fun and games. Your flesh would be torn off your back, and lots of bleeding and sorrow. They were flogged, and then they were released and warned again. Let's not hear you again in this temple courtyard preaching your heresy. What do we read? The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Acts 5 verse 4. Think about this. The temporal circumstances they experienced were bleeding backs and painful joints and torn flesh. But within there was rejoicing. There was the joy, the result of contemplation or thinking 
you know, we just took a shellacking because of our stand for Christ. How wonderful. We didn't cave in to the evil one. How glorious. God's grace was with us. And they were full of joy. Listen to Paul's authentication of the persecution that he suffered at the hands of evil men. As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, in riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hungry. In purity, understanding, patience, and kindness. In the Holy Spirit and in sincere love. In truthful speech and in the power of God. With weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left. Through glory and dishonor, bad reports, good reports, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we, we live on. Beaten and yet not killed. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Poor yet making rich. Having nothing yet possessing everything. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 4 and following. I read through that. I got to say there's enough temporal pain and reversal here to crush any man. And send him into deep depression and complaints against God. But Paul is full of joy. He's full of joy. Not because what happened to him was fun to go through. Not because he's a sadist who loves pain. But because he could see God in the trials and understand Jesus' words. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Because of me, rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Matthew 5, verse 11 and 12. So what I'm saying, brethren, is that joy transcends temporal circumstances. Temporal circumstances can make you happy or sad. But they can't destroy joy. Why not? Let's talk about then, finally, joy's root and joy's branches. What's the root? Chapter 1, verse 4. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord in spite of severe suffering. You welcomed the message. Now here it is. You welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. Jesus prayed after the successful preaching tour of the disciples. We read at that time Jesus full of joy 
through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. Luke 10, verse 21. So it should not be surprising to hear Paul exhort the believers at Philippi, Rejoice in the Lord always! I'll say it again. Rejoice! Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, verse 4 and 5. Brethren, the root of the Christian's inner joy is the Holy Spirit of God. In fact, as we already noted, this joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit that he brings into our lives. Galatians 5, verse 22. Love, joy, peace, fruit of the Spirit. This joy is not giddiness. It is not obscene or ribald. It's not brazen. It's not human. It's not of the world's philosophy. It's the gift of God, and that is why it seems so surreal to many observers. How, for example, do we explain Hebrews 12, verse 2? Let me read it. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Scorning a shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This just seems unreal, doesn't it? A willing Savior contemplating dying in agony on a Roman cross has joy in his heart. Joy in his heart? That's an enigma to the observing world. That is outright crazy. Yet here we have it stated. This joy is understood in his prayer. Then... He said, here I am, I have come to do your will, and by that will you have made me holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Hebrews 10 verse 9. The root of Christian joy is the spirit of the living Christ, whose joy resided in doing God's His joy wasn't in the circumstances. His joy was in doing the will of the Father. I dare say there are many a disciple that is in that same category. They've been imprisoned. They've been ill-treated by the world. But they have joy because they know they're doing the will of Christ. What about the branches?
Verse 19 and 20, for what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. Verse 19 and 20. And you know that's a repeated theme in Scripture. 1 Thessalonians 3 verse or Philippians rather 4 verse 1 Therefore my brothers you whom I love and long for my joy and crown that is how you should stand firm in the Lord dear friends Philippians 4 verse 1 or again Through my being with you again your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me Philippians 1 verse 26 And the other side of the coin. How can we thank God enough for you, says Paul, in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 9. Reciprocal. God's people bring joy to Paul. He brings joy to them. The Apostle John put it this way, I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. 2 John verse 12. Jesus taught us that he is the vine, we are the branches, that's John 15. That vitality we all obtain from Christ, the strength and ability to produce fruit pleasing to God, is a corporate entity, we work together on that. We're to enjoy and rejoice in each other's attachments to Christ and each other's service to Christ. If there's something that keeps you from fellowshipping with another group of believers, you're allowing Satan to use bitterness or anger or some other gripe to ruin your joy. Oh yeah, we abstain from involvement with people whose doctrine is heretical, but we must not withdraw from God's people who may have offended us over some sin or what you perceive as sin. In those cases, we're to forgive, we're to forget. Because life is short, short, but eternity is forever. You really want to face God with your grudge against a fellow believer? No group of believers was more hostile, more critical, more insulting to the Apostle Paul than the church at Corinth. You can read it for yourself. I believe they hurt him deeply. They certainly maligned him. They questioned his apostleship. They imbibed false teaching from men that they thought were super apostles. They won't listen to Paul, but they listen to these crackpots that showed up at the door. They accused Paul of being a money grubber. You're just in here for the money. 
Listen to his appeal. Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have great confidence in you. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged in all our troubles. My joy knows no bounds. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 2 and 5. That's joy. That's inner joy. So Christ is the root of godly joy through the power of his spirit. And you, you along with and in union with other believers of like faith, you are the branches. And brethren, we better all stick together because the world is going from bad to worse. And it will come the day when people who kill you will think that they are doing God a service. That's how twisted and distorted the thinking will become. Our Father, thank you for the joy that comes by your Spirit. Not just happiness. We're thankful for happy moments too, the circumstances of life that come our way that make us happy, a new birth in the family, a new job, a raise at work, the, the, the ability to buy your first new car ever. Yeah, there's lots of things that bring us happiness. But Lord, they're all circumstantial. They all can change overnight. They can change in an instant. We can go from glad to sad in a heartbeat. But what we need is that inner peace and joy that comes by your Holy Spirit. And that comes as a result of knowing you in the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing God in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you will help us to see that. And may we also be able to enter into the joy of loving one another and loving other brethren who love the same God and the same Jesus that we love. Even if they don't cross the T's and dot the I's in exactly the same way as we do. You've called us to peace. You've called us to unity. You're in the business of making your church one. One Lord, one faith, one spirit. I pray that you'll help us to see that. Thank you for this inner joy. Uh, our circumstances do change every day. They can be sad. They can be glad. But our joy is a constant. It is a solid constant that no one can take from us. Thank you, dear Christ. Amen. Our closing hymn is from the Brown Hymnal, number 501. 501. <coughs> Let's stand as we sing.
love this first verse. Jesus, thou joy of loving hearts. Well, let's see. Jesus is the joy of every loving heart, every Christian heart. It's wonderful to see that uh, he sustains us in our sorrows and griefs with his joy, the joy of the Holy Spirit. Do you know this morning you're loved by God? That's not a little statement. The vast majority of the world does not experience this love of God. Those whom he loved, he called unto himself become his children. That's you and me if you are in Christ today. Amen. We're dismissed. <coughs>
they have they have installed manufacturing. That's 